Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Okay, so first let's, are, are there any questions or talking points or comments that you might have? Anyone? Yes, please. So Sensei, we've been going over it for a while about the distinction between the body and the mind and how that distinction might be artificial. Um, you posted something a while ago from Uber Boyo that said, don't read books. And it was kind of hyperbolic, but it was something that kind of hit me because I think it's really starting to sink in that in the West, we've divided the body and the intellect to, I don't think it worked. I think it failed. And it seems like the wisdom that we're trying to trap it, to tap into here now is trying to not only remarry the two, the body and the mind, but to really just obliterate that distinction and division altogether. And it's been speaking to me a lot lately because of my own injury and understanding that there's, there's some things thinking is just not gonna do. And when I think about how we behave in the West, there's so much prioritizing on thinking and the body really is just a container for the brain. And there's so much connection between the so-called body and the so-called brain that if we were to try to put the brain in a vat, the mechanism designed to keep the brain alive would probably resemble the body. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's been really ludicrous to me to see how far we've come just prioritizing the intellect and not really not, I'm having trouble between saying marrying the two and just destroying the distinction altogether. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what I've been grappling with lately, prioritizing the mind and the body being more than just a container for that mind. Um, any anyone else have something? I am sure that's going to touch on everything else that is going to come up. Okay, so does anyone else have something? It, it, to you, it's going to seem like it's not related, so don't go. Mine's, mine's definitely not related. It is related. Okay, so um, is there anything anyone else has been thinking over, or contemplating? or struggling with is key. Yes. Sensei, I've been thinking about um, the role of the teacher and how to utilize um, or take full advantage of the technology that the teacher uh, allows us to tap into. I've heard you talk about using the teacher as a mirror. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's just something I've been thinking about. Uh, how, we, how I could take more advantage or deepen my uh, practice uh, and my understanding of what it is to have a teacher. 
Yeah, that's going to totally relate. Okay. Um, anyone else? Yep. Sensei, I think I've been struggling with uh, things that are definitely related to both of these that are already brought up. Um, relationship with teacher, uh, my own thoughts and triggering of ego tripartite mm -hmm. um, with, you know, in, in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in the other relationships in my life as well. Um, and then the, the, the thoughts that arise with this, these triggering events mm -hmm. and then getting stuck on the thoughts instead of taking action. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyone, anyone else? Since I talked to this kind of privately as well, but mm -hmm. I'm struggling with uh, just that feeling of isolation. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me right now to be around people. Mm -hmm. um, even just saying hello. Yeah. That in itself is hard. Um, the job itself, you know, I got a new job, so figuring that out, and I think mm -hmm. maybe just be related. Um, but uh, struggling with that. Okay. So as you, as you hear these, don't, you don't want to be going, oh, those are good ones. Mine's not good. <laughs> okay. Um, so any anyone else? The rest of you all perfectly fine. <laughs> Um, then we have a uh, podcast follower who wanted to hear our take on um, what what is in in Japanese. At least one variant of it is uh, katsujinken and satsujinken. These are, and I'll only refer to them from now on in English, okay? So, um, a reference to the life, what is called the life-giving sword, and the death-bringing or the death-delivering sword, okay? Um, and those appear opposite, very much like you have the body and the mind, or yourself and your teacher, or the deshi and the teacher, do you see? So let's, let us give some historical context to this, okay? So as you, as you know, um, prior to all this, uh, I was in the university, I was an academic, and I had a, you have a specialty, okay? At, at when, you, when you're getting your doctorate, you're supposed to specialize, so. Um, and mine was bringing the history of thought to the history of religions, and then the emphasis was on Japan. And you know, since I told you that, it was also very personal, which you weren't supposed to do. You had to, you had to hide it in the university setting, right? You're, n you're not supposed to go there for your own welfare. Like, at first, as an undergraduate, everyone does that. Like, everyone takes Psych 101 and, you know, is like going, oh, my God, I'm <laughs> I have this disorder, I have that disorder, right? Or 
you take biology, whatever, and you're like, oh, no wonder my, my kidneys are failing. You know, you, you, you read all this information and you apply it to yourself, in other words, right? And I remember in, in the psychology, like, the, the professor knows that and, like, right, right at the first lecture was all like, do not do that. You're going to do it. Do not do that, you know. Um, and, but when you got in the history of religions, or in, at, at my university, it was called religious studies, you, you are not there to be a practitioner. And in the undergraduate classes, they're almost a waste of time because people go there as practitioners and they get into theological debates with the professor, do you see? And an example of this is like the professor can't give the history of, let's say, Christianity. Those are, those are the ones, right, because in the United States, it's, there's a Judeo-Christian base uh, regardless of the diversity uh, of this country. So a lot of uh, Christians go to those classes, and a lot of Christians have a kind of missionizing aspect to their practice. Uh, and, uh, and then some Christians look at the Bible as a history book, literally, do you see? And now you come to a history class that let's say it's looking at the mythology of a region and you realize, wow, there are lots of flood narratives out there and they existed way before the, the Noah story came up, right? Um, and that's quite a shock to somebody who's trying to figure out where the boat is, do you see? They're trying to find the mountain with the boat and a lot of you are too young, but some of you are, are where I was. And there was even a documentary where they, they found the boat on, on the side of a mountain and things like this, right? So imagine you're that kid, and you're, and, or imagine you're that professor. And you're trying to just, man, I'm just, I'm a historian. I'm a historian. And then, but to, the, to that kid, you're like, you know, the devil or something. You're, you're, you need to, you're a heretic. Um, and so it's very tough for those professors to go, look, we're, we're doing the academic study of religion. We're not doing the practice of religion. And as you go from those undergraduate courses to the graduate courses, if you're going to stay in that department, you're going to have to follow suit. You, you don't come here and practice, okay? In other words, you're going to write, let's say, uh, the classes on, on mythical narratives of, of um, the Middle East, right? And you have to write a paper on it. But your paper is like, uh, you know, you're drawing maps to where Noah's Ark is. You're going to get a, an F on that because you didn't do the assignment, do you see? So you can't, you don't meet the prerequisites, so you can't take the upper division. And then if you do that in the upper division, you're not going to get into the graduate school. Do you, do you see that? So it kind of weeds you out. Um, but there is a, in this country, there is a class marker to secular materialism. 
And when you fall below a certain poverty line, you don't have as many secular materialists as you do when you come up above that poverty line. And I came, as you know, from below that poverty line. So um, there weren't mu many other, at that time, you know, people who are coming from government-issued American cheese, right? So um, while not necessarily a secular materialist, because it, it's tough because we're all moderns, uh, and that is the dominant discourse, while not necessarily that, um, I also wasn't a hardcore Catholic as my mom was. Okay. But I still had some sense that there were parts of me that were not mechanical, um, that were not material, that can, could not be addressed solely through my biology, for example, um, or even um, my mind separate from my body. You see, you, if you had enough life experience uh, without the indoctrination that comes via class, uh, people start saying things that you go, well, that doesn't make sense, right? But if you did have enough indoctrination, you, you kind of like, okay, and you overlook the contradictions and things like that. So here I am in this group, and I understand that I have to play the game. I'm not here to be a practitioner, but nonetheless, there was a side of me uh, that forever was like, how do, how do I use this information to help me personally? You see? So when I got into the history of thought, it was because in that I saw the possibility of a liberation, which is often the goal of many of these religions, particularly the kind that have a mystical slant. The ultimate tyranny is the one that we put over ourselves, the one that comes in through our fear and our pride and our ignorance. But through my studies, and particularly through the history of thought, I realized that ignorance was a tricky bastard. I realized that my assumption that the way that I am thinking now is precisely that, an assumption. It is not the way to think. It is not the best way to think. It is just a way of thinking. And that the world has had many ways of thinking. And so when I'm doing the history of thought, it definitely helped my own, like my dissertation work, but it was personally liberating. I think some of you, when, you're, when you have some of these struggles, uh, it's because you, you have bought hook, line, and sink, sinker, what I would call the fictions of your culture. So by being raised in this particular culture, 
you've been without awareness provided with a discourse, a way of thinking, a, a way of identifying problems and a way by which they're supposed to be solved. And that gets in the way. That gets in the way of your Budo training because Budo comes from a different discourse. It is addressing perhaps different problems or even the same problems but by different means and by different ways of thinking and by different assumptions. This is why I'm quite, you know, I, I have a problem because I have a problem with our social evolutionary thinking. Because one of the reasons that we don't question how we're thinking is because we have this adoption of evolutionary theory. We look at the fact that we can make a car or a smartphone and that there were no smartphones before we got here and we go, we are more advanced and we have better ways of thinking. I'm skeptical even of that position because I can see a time when some, some anthropologist, maybe from another planet, maybe from our own planet, but in the future, who's going to go uh, and is going to be lecturing a group of students and is going to be saying, we're going to now look at the uh, invention of the smartphone as we look into the decline of Western civilization. Okay. But I'll give you an example of, of how this, this hook, line, and sinker bind of our own modern discourse subverts something like Aikido or Budo and our understanding of the life-giving sword and the death-bringing sword. Okay. So I'm at the university. And you know, I, I was already training in martial arts. And someone does an Aikido demonstration in, I can't remember the department, but it, it, was, um, it was one of the humanities. Maybe it was philosophy, maybe sociology. And this is, this is a thing, do you see? This is part of academia now because you have to always be revolutionary. You, you, you have this sense, because you adopt the evolutionary way of thinking, you are pressed to always be the next evolution. So you always have to be revolutionary. Like you're not allowed to write a dissertation that, uh, on a topic that someone already did. They even consider it like, you know, it has to have a novelty to it before it is approved, you see. So if you have your philosophy or your sociology class and it's all book-based, do you see, somebody sooner or later is going to go, you know what, we should do painting. You know what I mean? Like it's, oh, that's revolution. No one else is finger-painting. They're all typing. <laughs> you know, the fingers are all used to press keyboards. Mine are used to dip in paint. And it gets some extra points, do you see? 
So somebody decides they're going to do, you know, activity. It's not, we're not sitting still, we're active, you know. But you can see how adolescent this is, right? Because you just jump to the opposite. That's apparently revolutionary, do you see? So why do I call it adolescent? Because, you know, you, when you rebel against your parents, it's, you usually take the opposite of them, you know. You don't ever take the thing they're giving you and then going, let me show you how good I could do this one, right? That would, be, that would be truly revolutionary when you think about it, right? Your parents are like, you need discipline, and you're like, no, I'm a, I'm a hippie, down with discipline, right? But in, it, and it never works, it's just, but if you were to go full on Jocko and you go discipline is freedom, and eventually your parents look undisciplined now, and they see that they are by you. Now you finally rebelled against them, do you see? And you won, okay? <laughs> but no one does that because our will to power is ultimately adolescent, and you do the opposite. You go to the opposite. opposite. So everybody is sitting down and discussing, I know, we'll stand up and move. And then you get, okay, good, that's 50 points more for Gryffindor. Uh, go ahead and let's see. So um, the, the, the presentation was on uh, power and, and alternative uses of power. Okay? Now, that's a big thing, again, uh, because the academic is somebody who has uh, lots of cultural capital but no real material capital. And so um, you have to figure out how you're going to get your, your, yourself into the economic fields that count. And the way that you do that is you kind of weaponize um, ideas, okay? And we're living through that era right now, you know. If, I, if we would have paid uh, these people more, or if they would have been intellectuals like they used to be, uh, although intellectuals have always been sidelined by cultures because of their lack of production, um, we wouldn't be where we are now. Okay? You're, you're really looking at people that are um, just following their own will to power. Pay attention to me. Okay? So power is, is always of interest to people without power, do you see? And if you don't have material capital, you don't have power. It's kind of like that part in the Game of Thrones that I always love, where uh, Littlefinger is, you know, he's all about ideas, and he's all this kind of crap, and he's talking to Cersei, right? And uh, he's trying to tell her how much power she, he has, especially over her, and then she snaps her fingers, and the, you know, giant armored men circle him, and She's all, this is real power, right? So, that's, and that's what usually happens in history. Eventually, the people that actually have the real power go, hey, that's enough of you, you know, you, you stand-up bullshitter. Um, so, they're having this talk on power. They get this Aikido guy there, okay? And Aikido is being presented as an, an, an alternative to power, which is where I try to overtake you and overthrow you. Do you get it? And a lot of people think like this in Aikido. 
Um, the door w was, it's not without foundation. The door has, was opened by O-sensei, but not entirely. It's opened by what he said and then the shift in discourses that happened as we went from pre-modern to, mo to modernity where people did not understand what he was saying from the pre-modern perspective, which is from the concentric epistemy, from the discourse of mysticism. So people hear somebody talking about peace and love and harmony, but it's coming through the modern discourse, do you see? And that's why I say we have to do this archaeology, and that's what I'm starting here right now. We have to get this history. We have to figure out what happened, and to do that, we have to free ourselves from our own cultural fictions, and to do that, we have to realize that this is only one discourse among many. I get to choose my discourses, do you see? I don't have to buy this one. And the problem is buying one, okay? So they do the demonstration. It starts with TenCon, right? Because you can't go and, and have all these academics because they're all soft bodies because they already have a mind-body split, do you see? So they already underdeveloped the body. So you brought up Urberboyo, and they're already jargonites, right? They're already thinkers. They're just talking heads, okay? Their bodies are totally foreign to them. And if you look closely, they're already falling apart. They, you know, the, bones, the bone uh, density is down because they don't do resistance training. Uh, they do drugs. They do pharmaceutical drugs. They have addiction problems, alcohol. They're just falling apart, right? So you can't do ikkyo. You're not going to do shihonage, right? So you do tai no henko, Okay. But everything is in everything in Aikido. There's only one Aikido technique, okay? So it's fine. And they have a guy uh, that's pushing, and you know, the wrist grab. And then they add the discourse, do you see? And they go, see, right now you're looking at your opponent. You, you guys are looking in opposite directions, which is kind of weird because at least you're looking at the person, do you know? But you gotta, make the, you gotta make the narrative, right? So I'm looking north and they're looking south. It, obviously, you know, uh, Sam Harris did this to uh, Jordan Peterson. You, you could have changed the narrative. You could have said, at this moment, we're looking into each other's eyes. Do you see? <laughs> we're not really contesting each other. Do you see? Okay, fine. And this is how I was, right? Because remember, I was like a, I was like a, a spy because this wasn't my class. So I'm watching all these talking heads talk, right? Uh, and I'm just sitting amongst them. Um, and so I, okay, Dave, don't say anything, right? And uh, okay, we're looking. You're we're looking in opposite directions. Check. Uh, right, because do you get what I'm saying? Like, if I was going to make love to someone, you sure as hell wouldn't want me looking in the opposite direction. You'd want me looking into your eyes, right, and laying on top of you. Where you're looking at me, I'm looking at you. Do you know what I mean? So that you could have changed this narrative, right? This is the deepest moment of intimacy. We're facing each other, right? No, we're, op we're oppositional now. Okay, fine. So I'm sitting in my chair. Um, and then they go, and then you do this foot maneuver, Tenkan, and that sounds very exotic too, because it's a different language and they love exotic ideas. So you get 10 more points, 
right? Because we, we were just talking heads and now we're moving bodies. And it feels good because they don't ever move, right? And there's a kind of endorphin release and things like that. And so they feel good. And now uh, you introduce some the exotic other and you go TenCon, and they don't know what that is, but you know, you'll start hearing it in conversations for the next week or so. Um, and so a TenCon, and now we're looking in the same direction, you see, and now we're not opposing each other. We have the same point of view, okay? Um, but it was presented on the flyer as Aikido, the martial art, okay? And I didn't say anything. Okay, but what is a martial art in our culture? It's, it's a self-defense or a fighting thing, right? That, that's what it means. So sooner or later, somebody, even a talking head, is going to go, um, what do you do if the person does this? You know, what if they don't go with your program, okay? Sure, they're looking at where you're looking now, but what if they turn and now they're looking back deeply into your eyes, okay? <laughs> um, you're, you didn't get anywhere. You see, you're back where you started. And, if, and you know, they did that for a while and then you get another talking head goes, yeah, and then another talking head, yeah, you know. And this poor Aikido instructor, they're like, oh, and, they, and then they jump to the next thing, which a lot of Aikido people do, is they go, well, then you kill him. You know, <laughs> he didn't say that, but basically, then you're going to do shihonage or something. Do you get it? Do you understand? Okay, now, um, while I was pretending to be a good talking head, I, I was also good at being a talking head. So... Uh, you, you go like, got you. So, you know, you play chess. It's basically, it's talking head chess okay, in, the, in the university. Um, so you know that part where you, you're playing chess and you go, oh, fucker doesn't see. I got check in two moves. So he moves that. Oh, he moved it, right? <laughs> you're like, got you, right? You know what I mean? Got you. So he basically is all like, well, if they keep going, then you kill him. And I go, got you. Got you, motherfucker, right? Because what was it supposed to be? An alternative, do you see? And that is the current discourse. We, we use the minimum, the bare minimum, use the minimum until we don't have to, and then we use whatever we have to. Do you get it? It's the whole modern discourse of self-defense. So if you look at our penal code, for example, that is what is written in there. If you look at use of force policies in law enforcement, that is what is written in there. So you, you can use what is necessary, and that means the minimum, right? Because anything past the minimum is going to be deemed unnecessary. So the, the word in 2021... Let's just take the law enforcement perspective. So um, the use of force for the United States is based in a case law that went before the Supreme Court, um, Graham versus Connor, okay? And in this case, there um, was a guy, okay? So you, there, there was a guy, and he has his friend drop him off in, fr in front of a convenience store. 
and he, he goes in really fast, and he comes in, comes out really quickly, and he drives away. And that is from the point of view of a police officer that's watching that. Now, in law enforcement, convenience stores are called uh, stop and robs. Okay, and um, you know, the people that work the convenience stores at night are like they're a whole other level of. Uh, bravery, right? And you could ask them, hey, how many times have you been robbed or have you ever been robbed? Oh, yeah. Okay. And a lot of them, some of them have like these bulletproof kind of places where they're in and they have rules about how much cash they keep in there and they, they put that information out there. There's only $20 in the safe so they don't face the felony, right? Um, so that's why you will see often late at night, the patrol cars are like across the street from the stop and robs and things like that. So that's what's happening. And he sees this happening. And that behavior is consistent with somebody who's getting intelligence for the robbery they're about to commit. Okay. So this officer pulls the guy over and uh, starts to investigate. Okay. And so Per the law, you can do what's called a pretext stop. These are legal. So you're driving, you get pulled over for some other infraction. Let's say you, you didn't use your, your blinker or your license plate light is out or whatever, okay? Now you're allowed to pull over for that because that's a violation of the vehicle code. And your real aim, though, is to investigate this other thing. So that's called a pretext stop, okay? So... As he's doing that, this guy that went in is all kind of fidgety and acting all kind of strange, do you see? And it's kind of consistent with a drug user who does these kind of robberies because they are looking for $20 or so to get the next hit because they feel sick, do you see? They're self-medicating like this. Um, but what was actually happening is the person was a diabetic and was entering into an episode uh, related to that uh, disease. Um, and the officer was not trained in how to recognize the symptomology of diabetes as you're going into shock or coma or something like that. Um, and so, like today, you, you receive lots of training, too, so you can understand the distinction between somebody who's high, somebody who is uh, resisting, and somebody who's having this medical emergency, but not back when this case happened, okay? So they handcuff him, and during the handcuff, there's a scuffle, and they... From the handcuff position, they realize now what is going on. They unhandcuff him, and he goes about his way, but he ends up uh, filing excessive force charges. And that case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and it establishes use of force for the country. Okay? And the phrase that the court came up, the Graham Court came up, was uh, objectively reasonable. Okay, so your, your use of force has to be objectively reasonable by which the unsaid is you're no more than is necessary. Okay? Uh, so you're talking about a minimum and you're talking about necessary. And in California in 2021 at the start of the year, the governor actually changed the use of force uh, code, which is Penal Code 835A, to take those Graham court uh, verbiage and he codified it. So it, in our use of force code, it actually now says objectively reasonable and it has necessary in there, okay? 
So that's the modern discourse. That is how moderns think about violence. Okay? And this, this Aikido instructor, is, this is not an alternative to violence. This is the very one we have right now, right? Um, and if you go back further in history and you see where Aikido started talking like that, do you see? You find that many arts talk like that. And you can go back hundreds and hundreds of years before Aikido and you're going to see many arts talk like that. Okay? There are slight shifts, though. There are slight shifts. In other words, what, you're like, what? Okay. They talked about, like, you, you do train in this lethal art, but you need to have some kind of noble uh, boundaries to it. You, you're not a madman. You're not a murderer. You're not a killer. Um, and so the, the ways that they would talk about this is you use your art virtuously, okay? Um, so early things like this uh, were, you know, if you look at modern translations of the Ten Commandments, the one that says, thou shall not kill, but the other better translations are thou shall not murder, which meant you can kill, you can't murder, Okay, so they're, they're drawing distinctions, like violence is permissible, not all violence. And that, that's still our modern discourse, okay? Not all violence. Um, some strange things that, are, that happen, though, when people buy the discourse without thinking it through. Aikido Journal put on a, some sort of seminar, it was by invitation only, I got, I did get invited, but I, I knew that I was going to be back in the land of the talking heads, so I pulled myself out. But they were going to modernize or, or make practical Aikido, okay? And really, all they did is they just added the rear naked choke to, to everything, okay? Um, <laughs> but, but they kept the same... They, they kept the same uh, kihon waza. So it was like rear naked choke from katata dori. Okay, so if we take this modern, this modern discourse on self-defense, as like the guy's holding my wrist and I choke him out. <laughs> when, the, when the police show up, you're arrested. Okay, because you did the felony. Because that's not the minimum acceptable. So... Uh, again, it's codified, do you see? So you have something that's called as a phrase in the penal code in California, but it's statewide because they're all following the, the Graham court, okay? Um, they have this phrase called serious bodily injury, okay? So, and it goes with death, death or serious bodily injury, okay? What is serious bodily injury? Guess what? It's also codified. You, can, you, you go down a few parentheticals and it says, here's what serious bodily injury is. Um, and one of them is unconsciousness. So you, you make someone go unconscious, you just committed serious bodily injury, and the only way that you can justify that legally is that you yourself were facing death or serious bodily injury, and you had to do that in order to stop that from happening to you. Do you see that? So it's kind of the same discourse. This guy is trying to get me, and I'll get him at the minimum level. It's not an alternative. It's even in our penal codes, right? 
So I, I raise my hand and I say that to that guy, right? I go, checkmate, because uh, that's what you do in the talking heads. Okay, that's what you do. And then, you know, he, de- he has no answer because also he was not an academic. What happened was his academ- the academic was one of his students, do you see? Um, and so he wasn't ready for checkmate. He thought, he thought like all Aikido people back then, um, everyone loves Aikido. You know, you'll love it if you try it. If you try, that's, that, that's like the selling pitch. It's like, try it, you'll love it. You know, it's quite different from us, right? It's like, yeah, we're not taking tryouts right now, <laughs> right? Uh, but most places, like, try it, you'll like it. And then, of course, because most people are talking heads that, can't, that have a, a surplus income, um, they move and they get the endorphins going, and then they go, I do like it, and then they get their rent going, right? So he doesn't know what to say, um, and he basically comes back and he goes like, some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla. I'm like, okay, whatever, just tip your king over. (laughs) I I think what he was trying to say was, you know, for some there's this or for some there's that, you know. But it's not a this or that, it is this, do you see? And so many, many people, again, think Aikido is this alternative in many ways, but it's not. This idea of minimum use of force, it goes all the way back to Sun Tzu. So when Sun Tzu is writing, he is talking about an economy of force. That means use the minimum, because anything above that costs. It's risk, it's resources, it, you, you get it? So you want to stick to the minimum. Um, so even when we train law enforcement now, um, you have the same idea. A, an economy of force is actually what is tactically sound because everything starts to cost and risk and things like that. Okay, so you're, you, when you look at the new penal code, uh, the way to look at it is this has been best practices for decades now in California. Okay, this is this is what good cops do. They don't go beyond the minimum because it's risky and it's a risk to everyone. Okay, not just the suspect, but to you and the public and your agency and things like that. Okay. But again, go back in history, way before Osensei, people are talking like this. What Aikidoka did, though, is they started to believe in, with the assumption that their art is unique, that their techniques were unique. Okay? So you ask some Aikidoka, and they really think they're the only ones that do kotagashi. They don't realize that there's no art that doesn't. Okay? Even arts completely separate from the Silk Road, completely separate from East Asian culture, they have a variant of Kotagash. Then in their uniqueness, they also think that the, uh, the techniques, though, are done in a way that they don't cause injury. Do you, do you get it? So, which is also not true. 
Okay, so if you look historically, if you get past the discourse, the cultural fiction that is Aikido for us now today, you're going to see many arts talked about minimum use of force, some sort of noble use of force. You're going to see all the same moves, okay? But you're only going to see Aikido believing in this uniqueness and then somehow they're done in a way where they don't hurt the person. They're, they're, they're spoken of often as they move in the, in the natural way the joints move, so they don't injure the person. And they believe it, okay? They believe it. Of course, this is really, really fishy. Um, just if you go back a few decades, even within the life of O-sensei, and you go, that's Daito-ryu. That, he called it Daito-ryu. Those are the, that he's given out Daito-ryu certificates, right? Um, and you think Daito-ryu is doing the, the techniques in a way that is causing injury, not moving with the natural way. So you, you have real problems when you talk like that, okay? But Aikido has, like the university, has become a matter of talking heads. Like Ubu Boyo says, they're jargonized. They all talk like this, right? So what, but like, you're like, well, what exactly? So let's say you take the concept of warrior. The jargonite's going to go, hmm, let me look this word up. And I have war, war, you see? War means, and none of us are in war, so there's no Aikido warriors. I rest my case. You, you get it? And you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, you, you're not. You're not. You're a jargonite. Look that one up. It's not even in the dictionary yet, right? It should be. Try to find out what it means, right? <laughs> so, but if you look at what a warrior is from a cultural anthropological point of view, the warrior is a violence specialist that puts that specialty in the service of others, okay? Um, you don't need the war to do that, okay? Uh, again, if you take a, a historical point of view on the concept of war, um, you're going to see that the meaning of war has changed throughout human history, okay? So the, the concept, for example, of counting coup versus storming the beach at Normandy, they're not both the same kind of war. You wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't train the, the U.S. Army men in coup counting to storm the beach of Normandy. Do you see that? They're not the same. They're different, but they have the same concept of you are a violent specialist and you're using that skill for the sake of others. Okay. And if you just define warrior in that sense, you're going to see that throughout human history. Okay. And that is different from a murderer. And this is how you get difference in the commandments between thou shall not kill and thou shall not murder. Because warriors kill, but they kill for the sake of others, do you see? When necessary and only to the degree that is necessary. And the murderer does it out of self-interest, do you see? and has no boundary to it. So this, 
In other words, when you go, what is the nobility that I would tie to virtue, to the to uh, to killing, to violent specialization? It's that it's done for the sake of others. Okay, and when you look at it that way, you're going to see that throughout. Uh, every culture, and therefore including Japanese culture, you're going to see that notion. Okay. But the jargonites of today, they they want to say that their techniques are are, are like less lethal, you know, like like a taser or something like that. Um, but again, you go well. How many times have you done these techniques in real life? And usually they're like, well, I, I lost my balance on my bike and I had to roll over. Like, shut up. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you see? Well, define use. What does use really mean? What is a technique? You know, look up eek. Someone look up eek, please. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm talking about, you freaking jargonite. You know, do you get what I'm saying? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So I'll let, some guy comes in or something, he's grabbing you, you're going to do Kotogash on him. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. If he wanted to go, then you shouldn't have done anything at all. Because they're not really contesting you, do you see? You're already not following your argument. Okay? The guy does not want to go. He wants to go the opposite way you're taking his wrist. So guess what? Your wrist movement's not natural anymore. It's injury-causing. And he does not want to fall down, but you're going to make him fall down. Do you see? So he's going to hit the ground. He's not lowering himself down. He's not going with your energy. So you're forcing him. You're going to hurt that person. Okay? And again, you see that in the penal code. So you're going to break those bones. You're going to injure those joints. And guess what? That's part of serious bodily injury. That's a felony. And guess what? Hitting someone with the planet through case law is actually assault with a deadly weapon. That's another felony. Okay? So one of my first cases, there was a guy, he punched, he punched the guy in the face. The guy went unconscious. So that's one battery felonious battery because he went unconscious. He hit the ground, knocked himself out. He became a vegetable, and that was assault with a deadly weapon. That's a, another charge, and those charges stuck. The DA filed it. Okay. So here's Aikido just totally in la-la land. They're at a seminar. I like, grab, my, grab my wrist, and I uh, choked, bitch. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> Why didn't you just pop his hand off of you? Do you know what I mean? You could do that. Do you see? That would be the minimum. That's why we don't, when we do Kihon Waza, they're not self-defense. They're not against wrist grabs, for example. Even when you come in with the strikes, they're not against that strike. Because it, it, it doesn't make sense. There's so many 
less violent ways of dealing with the wrist grab, do you see? And, we, and you don't have to create a fiction wherein you say, well, my, my kodagesh is going with the natural, you know, and you, you justify it with people that are trained on these padded surfaces to go down. Even though, well, they keep getting up, they're not getting hurt. It's like, because you're, you're not doing it for real. You're not doing it for real. And, you know, those same people would look at something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and go, that's a violent art. Okay? In my experience in real life, like, if you don't want to hurt the person, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tactics work way better for not hurting the person. Like, don't choke them out because then you're in trouble in real life, you know. Uh, don't put that rear naked on there, which in 2021 was outlawed in the state of California. So you can't even perform the lateral vascular neck restraint in the state of California. Um, unless, what? What do you think? Yeah, they're using lethal force or, or are likely to cause serious bodily injury. Then, then you can use that because that is operating at that level, even though that's not true, right? If you, if you study uh, BJJ, you, like you, it's one of the safest techniques you could do. But if you just take the strategies of control and using the ground to control and weight placement and things like that and posi dominant positions and things like that, uh, as long as your takedown, which, which usually is crappy because they don't do takedowns, right? They got to come to other arts to learn how to slam people. Um, but usually the takedowns are just kind of hold on. The guy will kind of topple over. Uh, it's a very gentle way of being taken down. Uh, and then you just get this dominant position and you just you're in a safe spot and you don't have to hurt the guy and You're fine. So it's the exact opposite of what the Aikido jargonites think your your art is the violent one Theirs is not okay So when some people hear this phrase of the life-giving sword That's what they believe Aikido is of the life-giving sword, and BJJ is the death-bringing sword, you know. Krav Maga is the death-bringing sword. Karate is the death-bringing sword. You get Because they, 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 they find their uniqueness in their modern discourse and, and then all the cultural fictions that go with it, and we do non-injurious techniques. But it's not true, and we're not the only ones that do these techniques. And your, your, your makeup of, um, you know, O-sensei change the techniques, that's not true either. None of that's true. But they believe it, okay? And why do I mention the jargonite, okay? We have to get past this discourse, our own. Our own discourse is intellectually heavy. Talking heads, okay? You're all talking heads. You're, you, that's how you want to and try to and justify your experience of the world and therefore also of your practice of Aikido. Okay? And it's one reason why I am so against the let's have these moments where we're talking. Do you see? But most of your times, in, in a crude way, is beating the shit out of you. Do you know what I mean? Beating, beating shit out of yourself. You got to get a body practice. 
So you mentioned Uber Boyo, and he also had videos on what the heck happened to Jordan Peterson. Okay. Because he's a talking head. Okay. And he keyed in on, on Jung's thinking. Um, and it, it's an interesting thing because um, he's from talking head culture, and talking head culture is also secular materialist culture. And uh, the problem is that Jung kind of just rewrapped the religious mind. Okay. For, for Jung, um, pre-existing cultures knew ways to tap into more of ourselves, and those ways uh, brought to the user a kind of overall wellness that the people in modernity don't have. Now, this echoes our sentiment here. Okay. We use the pre-modern technologies of Budo to help us moderns who don't use these technologies anymore uh, to bring wellness to ourselves, okay? So that is what Jung did. He, he just rewrapped the pre-modern religious mind, the pre-modern religious practice, um, but when it got to Peterson, this is Uber Boyle's point of view, and I would agree with him, it's a talking head thing, you see, because the pre-modern religious people had a body-mind practice, not a mind practice. And you can't reach your wellness solely through your mind, hence my caveat, the sick mind cannot heal the mind. Okay? You need the body practice. And the pre-modern people did not have this dichotomy between mind and body. Okay? Now, strangely, here's what happens. When I have this dichotomy between mind and body, for some weird reason, my, this is, I, this is just, it's cause it's, I think it's because it's ultimately adolescent. So I'm a jargonite, I'm a modern Aikido, Aikidoka, and my art does not cause injury, so it's the life-giving sword. At the level of the body. You see, the, the techniques themselves are nonviolent. So how do you become nonviolent? You practice nonviolence. How do you practice nonviolence? My techniques are nonviolent. You see? But for pre-modern man, even though they had a body-mind unification, it has to be manifested at the level of mind too. So it's not that your techniques are your your techniques themselves are nonviolent. You must be nonviolent, okay? It must be in you. So the life-giving sword is in you. It's not in your techniques, okay? And I always tell you, you can get a pillow, and you could be a violent MFer with that pillow. Do you see? Yeah, remember, I always tell you, you always have that, that kid in the pillow fight who just goes a little bit too hard, right? Wraps that pillowcase a little too tight, figures out which pillows are the heaviest, do you know? And like you never, you're never going to go, well, this person's very nonviolent because it's only a pillow. You're usually going, stop, stop, right? Your mom's coming in. Hey, what happened? Someone's crying, okay? You can be a violent person with less lethal things, okay? And pre-modern man looks at the talking head and goes, you idiot. Of course you can. Look at you. You're violent as hell with just your words, 
Look at you. Look at you. But the talking heads like to think, I'm not violent because I don't have the tank. I don't have the tank, you see. It's all just ego stroking, okay? So let's go back to this. I have this life-giving sword, and I have this death-giving sword. And it looks like, oh, I want the life-giving sword. That's what I'm supposed to do. That is what I'm supposed to do. But again, that's part of your modern discourse, okay? In pre-modern discourse, it's a yin-yang world. So if I have a life-giving sword, I need a death-giving sword. It's not something I get away with, okay? And so you're, you're like, well, why does that work? Okay, we already mentioned the warrior. The warrior is a violent specialist. He, there's a nobility in this person because that specialty is used in the service of others, even at the cost of themselves. So you will die for the sake of others as you perform your specialization, Okay. Well, as, as I'm doing this, okay, am I nonviolent? No, I'm violent. I'm very violent, okay? I'm as violent as I have to be. Um, in some warrior cultures, they talk about the wolf and the sheepdog. And you don't want to think of sheepdog as that, that hairy sheepdog. Do you know that one? There used to be shows about the kid movies, Disney movies, the Shaggy DA and things like that. And no, the sheepdogs they're talking about are like German shepherds and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Tuverins and, and things like that, right? These are dogs that fight wolves, okay? They are every bit if not more violent in terms of capacity as the wolves, but they have a protector role. Okay? I saw a video on YouTube where there's this big black wolf, um, and it was one of those sheepdogs in uh, Eastern Europe, which are huge. And so the wolf's eating this. Uh, they they kind of grew up together, and the wolf is eating this piece of meat, and the dog just comes over calm as ever, and just kind of sits on that wolf and puts his paw on his head and takes the meat. <laughs> okay. That's the sheepdog they're talking about. Okay. So that sheepdog never eats the sheep. Do you see that? It only protects the sheep. Okay. But it's every bit, if not more, capable of violence than the, than the murderer, than the wolf is. Okay. Um, so both, both swords have to be present in you. All right, let's go back. I posted a video on the symbolism of the tree. And I know he confused the topic with the four trees, but that's, that's bullshit. There's lots of trees because there were lots of trees. It's a garden. Okay, there's lots of plants in there, okay? Uh, what, is what is important or significant is that of all these trees, there were two trees. They're unique trees, okay? So what are those two trees? The tree of life is one, and the other one? 
Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and this is a mystic discourse at a certain point in human history. Later, it becomes a priestly discourse, and later it becomes an academic discourse. That, that is, as the jargonites start taking over. Okay? But as a mystic discourse, uh, you have these two trees, and they represent what? What do you think? Yes, the first mind aspect, the ego tripartite, the dichotomous mind, and then the second mind aspect, okay? That kind of God consciousness. So you now equate this to your yin-yang theory, and ultimately there's only two forces or two energies in the universe, okay? Don't, don't, they have yin-yang components, but there's only two. They're represented, represented in your internal aspects of your art, okay? So it's Aiki and Kokyu, but what are those two forces? What? Yep. Communion. And what's the other one? Separation. Okay, so now go back to these trees, okay? And the tree of life is the tree of communion, the communion aspect. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the dichotomy. It's the separating aspect, okay? So if I understand that throughout Japanese history, people talked about minimum violence, they talked about the nobility of the warrior, if we understand though also that the art is violent and that the warrior is violent, um, and we tie that to these things, this mystic discourse, it's supposed to be inside you. It's not about what you do. It's not about what technique you do or what art you do. It's inside you. It's who you are. Which sword corresponds to which cosmic energy? Go. Yeah. Say it. Take a risk. Yes, so the sword of life is the communion, is the sword of the God consciousness, the unconscious, that second mind aspect. And the death-bringing sword is the separation sword. Do you see that? And death has always kind of been that thing, right? Death is separation. Life is communing. Do you see? We come, you get born, you come into the family, you die, you go out of the family, okay? And you need both. I can't just have my ego tripartite. I'm going to be a talking head. I'm a jargonite. I'm going to suffer all the ailments that the Buddha warned us about. Okay? But I can't just hang out in God consciousness either. One, it's not possible. And two, there's, there's something that a lot of people who will want to go and say, um, I just want the sword that gives life. You see, you can't, I can't, you can't, you can't, if you get rid of the death-bringing sword, you lose the life-giving sword, okay? You lose the nobility of the warrior. I can't just hang out in God consciousness. So if you, if you, if you now take this to Shuhadi, 
the D state is this kind of integration or utilization of the two together, my ego tripartite and my God consciousness, okay? Here, why, 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 okay? Remember, the warrior is a violent specialist that is charged with virtue, the virtue of service, okay? The virtue of sacrifice. You, you in essence, have a code, do you see? You operate by the code. And there's something that a code does for the warrior that non-professionals do not understand, okay? This code in modern speak, addresses the toxicity of warriorhood. So when you live a life professionally where you are that sheepdog, you are in a toxic environment. Most of the public walks around, doesn't realize this happened yesterday in this spot, 10 more yards, that happened. They're not experiencing the violence, do you see, that happens every day in our communities. They don't even know it exists. The cultures have developed in such a way so that you don't know it exists. That is kind of what allows for people to even think that kotagaesh could be done nonviolently. Do you see? And it's also what causes a shock to the consciousness when they see somebody resisting arrest and the violence that is used at the minimum level to get them to comply. They've never seen it before. It's the first time they see it and it's shocking to them. You know, you're never going to see the sheep say thank you to the sheepdog, do you see? The sheep just goes, I'm going to go over here and eat. I'm going to, I don't know what those two things are doing. Let's go over here. We'll go eat over here. Yeah, let's go over here and eat. Forget those things, right? They don't understand. They don't know it. And that ignorance lets them imagine bullshit, Okay. I should be able to, you should be able to, it should have, you should have, right? There's a lot of shouldas, okay? It all comes from ignorance, and it all comes from prioritizing the talking head. There was a time when, yeah, if you didn't have a moving body, you would shut up. But near your talking head, every, every head can talk, so everyone talks. Okay. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter your body. And you see that even in Aikido. It's like, you're an Aikido master, but look at your body. No, you're not an Aikido master. Your body is like a uke, and you're not blending very well with it. You're not reconciling the contention points. You can't move, you're obese, you're weak, you're stiff, you're losing. You're fighting your body and you're losing because contention 
causes defeat. So this code serves the warrior to address the toxicity of the reality of violence. You need a code. In, in modern speak, your code brings meaning and purpose that allows you to walk through that toxicity. It will address the post-traumatic stress of putting yourself in that toxicity. You have a purpose and a reason for why you're there. It's quite weird to the civilian because the reason you're there is to die for others to live, like the sheepdog. You know, you're, you're a farmer and you have, you, they, they have dogs. I'm sure they love the dogs, but they don't love the dogs like we love the dogs. Do you know what I mean? They kind of love the dogs like cop spouses love their cops. Okay. In other words, like, you know, you get, of course you get the delusional spouses who don't think the job is violent because they're good jargonized, they're good moderns. But you get those spouses who realize, oh, man. Right? So you have the shepherds who know, I love my dog. That's a good dog. It's one of the best dogs I've had, but that dog might not make it home this night. Okay? You're going into a toxic environment. And like any human, human versus human violence gets us psychologically. It's, it's poison. It's poison. But through this warrior archetype, through the notion of service and sacrifice, you have purpose to the poisoning of yourself. There's and and there's the God consciousness does not does not deal with that at all. It just doesn't. The God consciousness does not matter whether you live or die whether you are or you are not. It will take you. Of course it will. That's what it does. Wants you back. Brings things together. It is the opposite of division and separation. You can't use your code from the God consciousness point of view. The code comes through the wisdom traditions, and the wisdom traditions are known through the intellect, which is part of the ego tripartite. So often today, mindfulness is thought to be very important, right? It's very like, this is spiritual. Not religious. It's not religious. It's not religious. It's spiritual, right? It's hilarious, but but there's nothing virtuous in mindfulness, 
Remember we say like a, an assassin, a sniper assassin is fucking mindful as hell as they're about to commit murder. Do you see? You could be, another teacher I heard is like, you could be a mindful torturer. Do you see? There's no code in mindfulness. Your code comes in through the other sword. Okay. You need both. You have to integrate both. Both mind aspects. Hence, ri. So if you, when you have shu, I have to have form. When I have ha, I detach from form. But if I just have ha, I just have shit. Do you see? Wiggly, someone comes in with an attack and you wiggling any how you want. That is ha. Do you get it? It's, it's not effective though. It's the integration of form and non-form that allows for what we want. Ri. So it is the integration of the first mind and the second mind for what we want. And so it is the integration of the death-bringing sword and the life-giving sword that we want. And we don't want to make the mistake that they're techniques. And I don't doubt for a second that, as they are now, that you can go back hundreds of years and somebody said, this technique is called katsujinken. Do you get it? I don't doubt that. But you're looking at an academic, an academic phase in history. It's, the, they, the mystics stopped using it and some talking head got a hold of it. Okay. And this integration can't take place. It's impossible to take place at the level of the mind only. It cannot happen. In the same way that I can't have my technique only at the level of the body because then I'm going to suffer the post-traumatic stress of the job. But I can't only talk about understanding it or I, do, I end up having the problem that, that Uber Boyo said Jordan Peterson had. Dude, you're just talking about it. You don't actually have a practice. You don't have a body component. You have to have a practice. It means you have to take the body and move it through space. And it must be consistent in the way that the mind is moving through feelings and thoughts, ideas and codes. Do you see? They're concentric with each other. Before my, mind, before my body is injured in a way that I'm suffering from it, my mind is injured in a way that allows for the suffering. Do you see? So you go to the, if you, if you look at your, I have an injury, it's just an injury. It's like I was saying yesterday, if, if your shihonage kihon was the one we did yesterday, you would have no problem being stuck on ikkyo, you know, because you wouldn't know the ikkyo component. You would just know this thing, do you see? So you just have something. It's not an injury until the mind creates space for the injury. It's just what it is. So as they say, like, um, 
you know, pain happens, but suffering is optional. Do you see? So pain is, is my nerves are being pressed upon. The nerves do this, but how do I experience that pain? Is it woe is me, right? Then that's not a body thing. That's a mind thing. And so you have to address both. You have to understand them both. Okay. So, how do I do this? I'm such a talking head. You know, this is my culture. You know, I think we should look up warrior. I think we should. I think, I think. You didn't realize you said I think like a million times. That makes perfect sense to me, right? I would be very sad if my dog would die. <laughs> I saw a John Wayne movie, and he had a dog. His dog helped him, and it's a Tuverin. I believe it was a Tuverin. Yeah, it was a Tuverin, which is a sheepdog. And uh, there's this boy, and so John Wayne rides up in cowboy. It's a Western for those of you who are too young to know John Wayne, you dirty bastards. Uh, So John Wayne goes everywhere with this dog, right? And he goes to this homestead, and the boy comes out because kids like dogs, right? And John Wayne's like, hey, don't pet that animal. And he's like, why? It's a dog. And he's all like, I don't want him getting soft. He has to he has to survive, you see. And so John Wayne doesn't even feed it. Like the dog has to hunt to get its food. And they're all like, what's the dog's name? He doesn't have a name, right? Because in nature they don't have names, right? He's leaving it how it is, do you see? That's not like our dogs. Okay. But the dog gets killed, and he goes. He he, he delivers some John Wayne, because <laughs> right? it's like his fellow warrior. Do you see? Okay, so how do I how do I get out of this? Well, okay, through talks like this, we uh, let's free ourselves from the cultural fictions of our own time. Okay, let's let's allow for the possibility that how I think right now is only one way of thinking and that I can choose how I'm going to think. I can choose how I'm going to experience the world. And there might be better ways. Let's drop the evolutionary thought and there might be better ways, do you see? There might be ways that I don't go crazy from this job or I don't go crazy because I'm just thinking I'm a talking head with no body component. Do you, you get it? Well, talks like these, but the one that was brought up was the teacher, okay? And again, if you look at the modern discourse, teacher's bad. Like, you know how, the, how modern teachers talk today is they're, they're, they're proud of how un-teacher-like they are, do you see? Like, I really like for my students to figure things out for themselves, you know, if I was a student and my teacher wanted me to figure things out, I was like, give me a discount, you know, 
Because if I'm doing half the work here, you pay me, right? That somehow that's supposed to be good. And how does it even work? You don't know crap about the art. And you're a talking head, and you're coming in with your discourse, right? In fact, what happens is you assert the art to your current mind. So it's no longer the alternative. You see, it can't be the thing that heals you. It just becomes part of the thing that's making you sick. To the same will to power, you, you do will to power in here on the mat. The same fears, it drives what you do and don't do. The same pride does the same thing. Do you see? But it sounds so nice, right? I like my students to uh, talk during training so they come to figure out things. What happens when you're talking? You're not moving. You don't have a body practice. You are just a talking head. The reason we don't allow talking during training is not, right, for this, their, their imagined subservience that they're trying to avoid, you see. It's because you're a talking head. You talk all day. Just move your body right now. So, you know, the, the good teacher now tries not to be the good teacher. We all have our own style. We have to all figure out how we're going to make this technique work for us. You know, like, like the, the, the science of body mechanics and physics is like individual. Like you, you have your own little black hole with its own little un, unique characteristics around you. I'm not. I don't really understand the physics of the, someone else. Um, it could totally be a multiverse quantum tachyon variant of some kind that allows for what appears to be ultimate weakness and instability to actually be the opposite. Do you, get, do you know what I mean? <laughs> do you see how hands-off I am? Don't you love me? Like, no. No, I don't. You're, you're wasting my time. But if you look at the pre-modern, the mentor was key. Do you see? The mentor was key, but how? The mentor is a tool. The mentor is a tool. So if, if I am here and I'm trying to get the sort of life and the sort of death and the first mind and the second mind and the ego tripartite and the God consciousness and I'm trying to get them all integrate, integrated and in fact I am ignorant of my attachment to my own cultural fictions and my own discourse, by what means do I get some sort of interruption into that process, the teacher? The teacher. So you mentioned the tool, that as the teacher as a mirror. You see? The teacher brings light to all the unconscious adoption of our dichotomy, of our cultural fictions, of our assumptions. So we can see ourselves. The teacher, as we mentioned last time we spoke, creates those events 
those attachment events. It brings you to the surface where you become observable to yourself. What does the teacher expose? It, the teacher exposes the ego tripartite over and over and over again. As the teacher trains you in the skills of release. As the teacher and the practice prime you for the experience of the God consciousness. This has nothing to do with the Jargonite's hierarchy. It's very much a tool. So as you would be a fool to get a hammer from the toolbox to hammer a nail and go, damn you hammer, I'm so dependent on you. I don't think anyone ever says that. You more go like, I'm lucky, woo. I, I know where the hammer is. I found the hammer, right? Usually you don't know where the hammer is and you're like, how am I going to get this effing nail in? Nobody goes, mm, I wish I wasn't dependent on you, hammer. I'm going to do it with my own hand. Ouch! Ouch! Mm, okay, hammer. <laughs> I'll use you. You know what I mean? It's crazy. The, the teacher that does not want to be the teacher and the deshi that cannot use the teacher as a tool is suffering from the ego tripartite. That is what is happening. Right? The student believes there's some sort of big fish, a big catch. It's a big catch. You got all these other fools fooled, but not me. You're not reeling me in. I'm not going to defer. I'm going to discover my own Aikido. You know? As if you could ever discover the teacher's Aikido. Like, as if that's a possibility that you could ever discover anyone else's Aikido but yours. Do you see? That you actually have to try not to discover someone else's Aikido. That, this is crazy. That's all ego tripartite. That's all the tree, right, of dichotomy. Somehow that makes sense to you. Uh, we could sit here all day and you're only ever going to do your Aikido. It would be the most interesting experiment. Nope, that's yours too. That's yours as well. Can you do someone else's? Are you going to try now? No, that's yours again. Wow, this is weird. But it, it creates this thing that the, the, the illusion that you could discover someone else's Aikido kind of pseudo-justifies why you can't practice releasing the ego tripartite. So the teacher is like a problem. It's because the whole world's a problem for you. Look deeper. The whole world is a problem for you. But the teacher's a mirror. I say the teacher that cannot fulfill the role of that tool is really a coward. They're betraying you. 
Now, they might not have the skill. They might not have the skill to be a mirror. But then guess what? They should not be a teacher. It's not, it's not only the should, it's, it's not a moral should, it's they can't. You can't be a teacher, therefore you should not be a teacher. Because you are not a teacher. You're running classes. You're running exercise. Okay, be an exerciser. You're an exerciser. Right? And there's, there's gyms all over the place, right? Where they're doing aerobics. And they don't, they don't, they don't go, I'm a teacher. Right? I'm a sensei. They're like, you're just an exerciser. So be an exerciser. Don't, don't tell us what Aikido is and is not. Just run your exercise sessions. So in the same way as you as the deshi is trying to make sure you're not exercising, not just exercising, I'm actually on the path. I'm actually addressing these mind aspects. I'm actually integrating mind and body. I'm actually understanding my code. I'm actually integrating the life-giving sword and the death-bringing sword. In the same way that you're working on that, and not just exercising, your teacher can't just be an exercise leader. They have to be a tool, and you have to be able and willing to use the tool. The teacher exposes the ego tripartite, brings it to the surface of your awareness, and you do something about it. What? You practice and cultivate the skill of releasing. That's all the teacher does, over and over and over again. There's no end to the training to the way. It's not a state of mind. It's a skill. So it's perishable. So how long does the teacher do that for? For forever. For as long as you need it. When you reconcile your own ego tripartite, the teacher disappears. Even though the person who is the teacher stays there in space, but they're not the mirror anymore. You can already see yourself. You don't need the mirror. The teacher hasn't changed anything. They don't feel any loss for not being the mirror because they don't feel any gain for being the mirror. So as you, as you struggle with how do I use the tool that is the teacher, and it's a, experienced as a struggle, it's telling you you still have not released. It's not really what the teacher's doing. Right? I know you might put on these clothes and you look at the mirror and you go, you fucking mirror. You know what I mean? Like you're trying, you, you turn around and you check out your ass and you're, goddamn mirror. You know, but <laughs> you, you probably, if someone heard you, they go, I don't think it's the mirror's fault. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it's the mirror. It's the same thing here. You're like, you fucking 
teacher. It's not the teacher. It's your skill at releasing or lack thereof. Okay? But that ego translates it as it's external, it's the teacher. It's, ex it's the mirror, it's not, right? It's not the donuts at work every day. It's the mirror, the mirror did it. Do you know what I mean? It's external to me, okay? So these two swords integrate. You can think of them as the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the dichotomy. You can think of them as the ego tripartite and the God consciousness, and you can't pick one over the other. One without the other is insanity. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.